Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Well, hey, if you are joining us for the first time, let me welcome you once again. I know they welcomed you a moment ago. Uh, that video and everything you've seen uh, with the graphic behind me, uh, as it would suggest, we are in a series today uh, that we've been in for the last seven weeks entitled The Kingdom, A Christian Manifesto. And uh, we are talking about this subject that, that Jesus spent so much time addressing during his three years of ministry here on the earth, more than faith and more than grace and more than giving and more than all the stuff that we would generally attribute to the teachings and the ministry of Jesus, he talked about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And uh, the reason I wanted to play that video again today, we haven't done it for a few weeks, is because I like the tension that is built up in that video with that song, because I think it mirrors what, what people might have felt as Jesus began to speak about this subject. It was a very provocative topic that Jesus brought up. It flew in the face of the culture and the norm that, that Jesus found himself in. He made some radical assertions and some radical statements about what it looked like to truly follow him. And as the graphic and the video suggested, some have called it an upside down kingdom. His, his statements and his teachings were so radical that they flipped every norm on its head. The social constructs, the political constructs, the economical constructs, everything about their world looked different when Jesus began to address what it would look like to truly follow him. And so every week during this series, we have been asking ourselves a question. If, if Jesus is is, is this serious about this subject? If, if life is supposed to look that we, the way that he displays uh, for us here in scripture, we've been asking ourselves this, am I a kingdom person? Has the teaching of Jesus, have the ways of Jesus so radically impacted my life that everything I knew before I met Christ has been flipped on its head? Have I thought differently about my future? Have I thought differently about the way I walk into my workplace or my school? Has it changed the way I invest my time and my resources? Has it completely flipped my life on its head? Or is Christianity to me simply a time card that I punch on a Sunday morning for an hour and 15 minutes a couple of times a month? If that's the case, then we need to come back to the centrality of these teachings and allow them to confront us appropriately because he's not looking for marginal, half-baked, watered-down, some kind of committed people. He's looking for those that have wholeheartedly handed their lives over to him and said, I am a kingdom person. And so that's what we've been doing every week in this series. And uh, we've talked about some pretty radical stuff. We've, uh, radical, <laughs> I love that one. I feel like I'm from the 90s all of a sudden. All the three 90s people in here laughed. Thank you, okay. Uh, but we've talked about the demand of the kingdom to come first in our lives. We, we've talked about the speed of the kingdom. We've talked about how we've been called to lay down our lives to serve one another. And then last week, we talked about the violence of the kingdom, got a little bit aggressive. Uh, if you've missed any of those, you can go back and check them out on the YouTube or the podcast. But uh, today, we get to speak of a subject that I've been looking forward to since the beginning of this series. I've been, I've been waiting for this moment, and, and I'm excited to, to bring the word today because today we're talking about the religion of the kingdom, the religion of the kingdom. Thank you, Harley. All right. Everybody else will get on your team in just a couple of moments. So this topic of the kingdom, yes, it was predominant in Jesus' teaching, but if you were to, to look at every single one of his, his, his teachings, his sermons, you'll notice a common theme in his teaching, and that is while the kingdom is the predominant subject, buried within that theme is Jesus' desire to redefine what it means to be religious. I say redefine because that word has, has gotten abused over the years. It's been drugged through the dirt. Uh, people have, have attempted to 
call it something that it's, it's not. In fact, many well-meaning pastors have kind of drugged that word through the dirt and suggested that religion is nothing more than ritualistic demands that are void of any kind of heart devotion. In other words, it's, I go to the thing, I, I pay the tithe, I serve at the, at the place, and I just kind of go through this rhythm, this ritual of doing godly things, but my heart is completely disconnected from what I'm, I'm doing. It's, it's this idea that it's dead and boring and stale, but it's, I have to, and so I continue to do these things. But, but that's actually not true. That's not what religion is. Um, in fact, the Bible teaches us that, that religion can be a good thing. Uh, the apostle James, the brother of Jesus, he, he actually says that there is such a thing as a true and genuine religion in James chapter one, verse 27. In other words, true religion does exist. And it's not just a pair of jeans you have buried at the bottom of your drawer from 2002. <laughs> There is such a thing as true religion, but in many ways our world has gotten that wrong. True religion can get tainted. The purity of religion can get polluted. That's why right now as we sit in this room within our own religion called Christianity, there are over 45,000 different denominations because nobody can seem to agree on what it looks like to truly follow Jesus. And even within those denominations, there's factions of, of groups that believe something slightly different than the other part of their denomination. So you've got the Church of God and then the Pentecostal Church of God and then the Church of God in Christ and the Baptists have about 75 of them and go on down the list. If you've ever wondered why we're a non-denominational church, that's it right there. I'm just way too confused. I don't know. There's just so many to choose from. So I'm just gonna go non-denominational on it. But there is still, amidst all of the diversity of belief, there is such a thing as true religion. There is a purity available to us. But, but what's happened over the years is that true religion, that pure religion, has been added to or taken away from. And when we add to and take away from the simplicity of the gospel, what we don't realize is we end up creating our own version of what we call legalistic dead religion, something that is not found in the counsel of scripture, but something that man has created to serve his own interests. And that is why I want to title this chat today appropriately. Um, if we in our human broken state have the propensity to create little pet baby dead religions for ourselves, then in order to be a kingdom person, we need to get good at, and here's the title, losing our religion. That's me in the corner. That's me in the spot, losing my religion. Okay, some of you know that. REM, for the rest of you, get cultured for the love of God. Okay. <laughs> losing my religion. To help us do that, we're going to look at a passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 23. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up there now. We will put it on the screen in just a moment. But let me, let me provide some context. Here in this particular passage of scripture, Jesus is doing what he did so often during his ministry. He is dialoguing and debating with the scribes and the Pharisees about this subject of religion. Uh, if those names are unfamiliar to you, you know to the Bible, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees were essentially the religious leaders of Jesus's day. And and it was their job to teach the people what it looked like to be in right relationship with God and how to truly serve him. Um, however, these scribes and these Pharisees did the very thing that we're talking about right now. They had spent a lot of time adding to and taking away from the purity of God's commands. And in so doing, they created a version of religion that was inconsistent with what God commanded. And Jesus, rather passionately, aggressively, time and time again, corrects these scribes and these Pharisees in Scripture. And we're going to take a, a window, a look into one of those rebukes. Uh, it says this in Matthew 23, verse 1. 
Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, they're the official interpreters of the law of Moses, so practice and obey what they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they preach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands, and they never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of the religious law, and you Pharisees, you are hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others enter either. Strong rebuke from Jesus, but one that, yes, even today, now a couple thousand years later, we need to take seriously, lest we end up clinging to a religion that we should be losing. So let's pray as we get into this, and, 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 and as I pray, let me just address something that is, is an obvious existence in our church. I know that many of the people who attend the Father's house right now come from a variety of religious backgrounds. I meet people almost every single week that come from Catholic churches or from other denominational churches, and uh, they make their statements and comments about how things are different here. And, and I just want to appeal to you as we go to the word today, if I could, whatever your religious background today, can we just, can we set all of those at the feet of Jesus for just a couple of moments today as we receive the word and just say, I don't know if I believe the right thing or the wrong thing, but I'm surrendering what I believe to the feet of Jesus today so that he can teach me what it looks like to truly be a kingdom person. Would you guys be up for that as we pray this morning? In fact, why don't we, why don't we just all put our hand over our heart as we, uh, as we pray and get into it. Father, we love you, and we thank you that you love us enough to teach us the truth. And God, I'm not arrogant enough to assume that I know the truth, that you know this is, this is the right way. The Father's house has it the right way. I'm not arrogant enough to assume that, but I know that your word and the counsel of your scripture has the ability to correct wrong thinking, to establish, God, what truth is in our lives and to show us the way so that we can walk in it. So today, whatever our backgrounds, whatever our beliefs, we lay them at your feet. God, we ask that you'd show us what it looks like to be kingdom people in this area of religion. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen, amen. So this last week, um, my wife and I, we became the proud parents of a junior high girl in our house. Um, thank you, yes. We didn't like adopt somebody. My, uh, my uh, oldest daughter, Ellie, she graduated, actually they call it promotion now. She was promoted out of elementary school and she is now a junior higher, which is terrifying for me as a father. Um, it's terrifying for me because I remember what I was like in junior high and I am not prepared to raise myself. Come on, how many remember what you were like in junior high and you do not want to raise yourself and your kids? Okay, yeah, welcome to the team. Uh, but that terror was only compounded when my wife looked at me on Wednesday during the graduation and she said to me, hey, I just want to remind you that you and I met for the first time during my elementary school graduation. And then she followed it up with this statement, so Ellie could be meeting her future husband right now. And I'm like, I will stab every boy on this playground right now in the name of Jesus. Like, absolutely not. But it was, it was, it was a terrifying time. So uh, on Wednesday, um, her school had sent out an email to invite all the parents to come and celebrate this party on the uh, yard four of the elementary school. And uh, they told us what gate we were supposed to enter into because they were keeping the school safe after all that's happened in the last couple of weeks. And so we walked down to the school and um, we brought my parents and, and Robin's parents. And so the group of six of us were walking down to, to watch Ellie's promotion ceremony. And uh, as we were approaching this gate that we were supposed to enter by, uh, a group of parents was walking away from that gate. And they said, oh, they just locked this gate. And they told us that we need to enter up by the garden. And so we turned around and those parents followed along with us. And we began to walk up the hill towards the garden entrance of the school. And on the way, some other parents were heading down. We're like, oh no, we're all going this way to the garden. They closed up that gate. And 
so there's a small herd of us making our way over to another gate to get into the school. Um, when we arrived at that gate, unfortunately that gate was also locked. And so having the gift of leadership, I said, well, I think there is a gate on the other side of the school. Let's hike back up the hill and go around to the other side because I'm sure parents are parking over there and they'll let them in on the other side. So we head back up the stairs, back up the hill, and there's yet another group of parents that joins us and we sojourn over to the other side of the school. But when we turn this corner, there is yet another group of parents coming up from that side of the school who inform us that that gate is also locked and they told them to go back around to the other side where we started. So, so Robin is frustrated at this point and she's like, I'm gonna take some initiative. I will open up the gates for everybody. And I'm like, she's gonna like Hulk Hogan the thing or like scale the gate and like, I don't, she's capable of both. But she, uh, she goes over to a door and she hits an intercom and the office lets her in. And a couple of moments later, she finds herself in the garden area, opens up the gate. And this group of like 30 or 40 parents is finally allowed access to the school. So we celebrate with our kid for a couple of hours and we eat lunch and we go home and then I sit down in my office to begin to prepare this message with this experience fresh in my mind. And as I dive in to begin to read the commentaries for the sermon I'm gonna to teach today, these words pop up off the page and they just begin to slap me around in light of everything that I just experienced. Here's what one of the theologians said. And speaking of the Pharisees, he said, not one regulation would the Pharisees relax or remove. And then look at this line. Their self-confessed purpose was to build a fence around the law. To build a fence around the law. According to the smart guys, the theologians, this was the aim of the Pharisees all along. It was in their job description. Over the years, these leaders were so concerned about people approaching the presence of God in an unworthy manner that they began to make rules on top of rules on top of rules that became fences to keep people intentionally out of the presence of God. Every new rule became a fence. Every new rule became a wall that kept people at a distance. And no matter how hard the people tried, they just kept running into proverbial locked gate after locked gate after locked gate after locked gate, incapable of getting to what they desired on the other side. And so after years of creating these rules, like a herd of lost parents at an elementary school, an entire generation of people finds themselves outside of the presence of God incapable of accessing. And Jesus is frustrated about this reality because he knows that the father longs to be with the people. So, so he comes and aggressively begins to correct this religiosity, this dead religious mindset to tell the people, hey, the father wants you in his presence all along. And if they're not gonna let you in, I will open up a door. I will make a way for you to get to the father. So, so I guess in the story, Robin is like Jesus. She always gets to be Jesus in the story. I never get to be Jesus in the story. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Amen. This is essentially what Jesus is saying here when he begins to rebuke the Pharisees and the scribes. When he says, you shut the door of the kingdom on people's faces, you yourselves won't go in and you don't let anybody in. What he's saying is you guys have built so many walls you have made it impossible for people to get to the Father. But part of my job description as the Messiah here on earth is to tell you that these fences and these walls and these barriers, they do not belong in the kingdom. So if what Jesus is saying here is true, that the Father wants unfettered access to himself, that there should be no barrier, regardless of who you are, or where you came from, or what you've done, between you and the Father, and yet the Pharisees' practice was to 
set up these fences to keep people out, then I think we need to ask ourselves this question this morning. Is there any Pharisee in me? Is there any part of my religion that keeps me at a distance from God? Are there beliefs and mindsets and things that have been ingrained in me that are extra biblical that become barriers that keep me intentionally at a distance from God? Or, or he said that there were unbearable demands of the Pharisees. Let's ask it like this. Have you bought into a version of religion with such unbearable lofty demands that it keeps you chasing your tail in the spirit, trying to do better and try harder so that you can make your way to God? Or do you enjoy that free access to his presence without any barriers? Is there any Pharisee in me? And as a test to determine the answer to that question, I offer you a quote that Honestly, is in my opinion, probably the most powerful quote I've ever read on the subject of dead religion. It is written by my second favorite theologian, William Barclay, uh, Billy Barclay. Here's, here's what he says. He says, here's the test of any presentation of religion. Does it create wings to lift people up or a dead weight to drag them down? Does it bring about joy or depression? Are people helped by their religion or are they haunted by it? Does it carry them or must they carry it? Whenever religion becomes an affair of burdens and prohibitions, it ceases to be true religion. Whew, that's fire right there. That's so good, I almost took credit for it myself. I would like to quote myself this morning. Here's what I say. I mean, look at that last line. When religion becomes an affair of burdens and prohibitions, it ceases to be true religion. Let me ask you, is the Jesus of your religion, is he a demanding tyrant or is he a loving savior? Does he liberate or does he constrict? Is, is your motive to serve him fear of judgment? I just don't wanna be in trouble. I just don't wanna to go to that bad place for eternity that nobody wants to go. Or are you motivated by love and joy and a desire to serve the king? What's the Jesus of your religion like? As, as I ask those questions, I can't help but analogize and think about the, the relationship that I have with my wife. The, the beauty of marriage that scripture tells us is a picture of how the relationship with the father is supposed to work. You know, I, I don't do certain things or not do certain things in my marriage because Robin is a demanding tyrant that makes me do them. That's not why, it's because I love her. My motive is love. It's never I have to. It is, I desire to. You know, like many of you who are married, I, I made some, some vows and some commitments to my wife on the day that we got married. I stood across the altar from her and I, I made the obligatory statements, right? Like, to have and to hold and sickness and in health, balling or broke uh, until death do us park. You're, you're mine. You, know, you know the statements, right? But, but, but I didn't laminate a card with those contractual covenants and put it in my pocket that day to refer to later on to ensure that I'm living up to the rules of our marriage. I've never been in a conversation with a woman and started to get flirtatious and in the middle of that conversation got, oh, you know what? I'm sorry, can, can you hold on just one second? I'm just forsaking all others, I keep myself. You know what? This is inappropriate. I guess I shouldn't be doing this right now because according to the rules of my marriage, I'm supposed to honor my, no! I don't have to refer back to the covenantal commitments I made. Why? Because I love her. Love 
wants to do the right thing. Love wants to serve the other person. It's not some religious demand on me by a tyrant. No, my love automatically wants to honor the covenant and the relationship that I am in. And when faith becomes nothing more than a litany of rules that we have to adhere to in order to garner acceptance from the Father, then we have traded in our love for a version of dead religion that has no place in the kingdom. We have become nothing more than a modern day Pharisee. And if we find ourselves in that space today, if there are some pharisaical ways in us, then we'd be wise to take the advice of our musical friends and to lose some religion this morning. And to help us do that in our remaining time together, we're gonna look to an account in the life, a moment in the life of Jesus where he addressed this area specifically. Um, If we find ourselves dealing with dead religion, then according to this series and according to the ways of Jesus, here's what we need to do. We need to flip it over, flip it upside down. So in one such case, in probably the most dramatic display of Jesus's hatred for dead religion, we find him doing something that seems a bit aggressive and potentially like an overreaction in, in the setting. Some have called it a a visual parable because it displays so beautifully how Jesus deals with barriers and fences that keep people out of his presence. Uh, The event takes place just shortly before the story we've read earlier where Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. Um, He is entering into the holy city on what we now know as Palm Sunday. And as he's making his way into Jerusalem, he goes to ground zero of the scribes and the Pharisees. He heads over to the temple. And here's the account we read in Mark chapter 11 of what takes place next. It says, when they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He flipped over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, for all people, regardless of what you faced. But you have turned it into a den of thieves. I want you to get this visual because it is, it is so powerful and is such a beautiful display of how Jesus deals with this stuff. So we're told that Jesus walks into church on a Sunday morning. And as he walks into church, he ends up encountering some tables. He he sees some tables for money changers and animal sacrifices. And it says that those tables became a bit of a hindrance to him. He got a little frustrated. Now, Now we need to understand the, the nature of these tables, their location and their purpose, because it will help us to understand why Jesus seems to overreact in this situation. Uh, at this time, the Roman occupation was in charge of Rome. Uh, excuse me, was in charge of Jerusalem. They had come in, they'd conquered Jerusalem, and now it was under their governance. And as the leading organization running Jerusalem, they had determined that there was a certain currency that was acceptable in Jerusalem and nothing else would do. It was the Roman denarii. Um, However, the Romans had given the Jews jurisdiction over the temple, and the Jews believed that Roman money was unholy. They didn't want it in the temple because it had no business being around the presence of God. And so they set up these tables in the courtyard of the temple where you could come and you could exchange your Roman money 
for the sanctuary shekel before you came in to give God your offering. There were not three ways to give. There was only one. There were the boxes in the lobby and no apps and no websites. And so the exchange had to take place at one of the tables. Uh, furthermore, we are told that there were some tables set up so that people could purchase animals for sacrificing in the temple. Remember, this was the Passover celebration. It was the biggest festival in Jerusalem all year long. And many people pilgrimed back, made the pilgrimage back home so that they could celebrate Passover in the holy city. However, in their journey, they didn't bring the animals that they were planning to sacrifice with them to church. And so the Pharisees set up some tables in the temple courtyards where you could come and you could purchase an animal for sacrifice so that you could acceptably serve God in the temple. Now, that information alone seems rather accommodating. Like, okay, that was nice of them to set up an exchange table and some tables to, to, to buy animals. What's the big deal? Well, it's accommodating until you realize what kind of exchange rate they were dealing with. Because the Pharisees did not use this as an opportunity to serve the people. They used it as an opportunity to extort. In fact, the exchange rate, most theologians put it at about a 20X, a 2,000% increase. So imagine handing over your dollar and getting far less in return and seeing the cost of animals. Inflation was cray cray back then, okay? Like it was really, really high. And so they were robbing the people of their resources. And if you could not afford to pay their prices, then you were not allowed access into the temple. Furthermore, we are told that these tables were set up in the outer courts of the temple. Uh, this would be known as the court of the Gentiles. Racism was so prevalent in their day that the Jews refused to worship in the same space as anybody else. It was Jews and then the rest of the world. If today you're here and you're not Jewish, then you're a Gentile. Shout out to all my Gentile people. Yeah, okay. Actually, I'm like 16% Jewish, so I'm kind of like a half-baked Jew, but that's all good. It's great. So the Jews refused to worship with the Gentiles in the temple, and so a courtyard was set up. The outer courts were set up for the Gentiles to come and, and worship God. Only in this case, their entire courtyard is being overrun by money tables and by tables for animal sacrifice. So not even the Gentiles could make their way into the presence of God. So, so these tables are more than just tables. They're filters. If you were the right race, if you had the right amount of money, if you had the right upbringing, if you were of the, the right group, then you were allowed access into the temple where the presence of God was housed. But if you didn't fit all the right categories, if you couldn't make it over their fence, then this table was nothing more than a wall that kept you out of the presence of God. Now, I don't think anyone has run into one of these tables in a, in a church lobby recently. Like, you know, we have connect tables in the lobby. We have a, a merch table out there occasionally where we sell church merchandise. Hopefully we're not running it up 2,000% to try to rob you of all of your money as you come into the house of God. As far as I know, I don't think we do any animal sacrifices here at the Father's house on Sunday morning. I'd have to check with Jazzy and kids. I don't know, I'm not over there, but. I mean, I can't speak for what happens in this building the other six days of the week. It is a Masonic building, but here on Sunday morning, we don't do any animal sacrifices. However, I think it's safe to state that all of us have run into some form of a table as we've attempted to make our way into the presence of God. Whether those tables were of our own making, whether those tables were the making of religious leaders or denominations that came before us, abusive pastors, 
I think we've all run into some form of a table before. Maybe it's not money or animal. Maybe, maybe we've run into the purity table before. The table that says only the pure can come beyond this point. You are way too filthy. Your sin, your shortcomings, your failures. No, no, I'm sorry. You cannot move beyond this point. How dare you consider yourself worthy enough to enter into the presence of God after what you've done and after what's been done to you there's a sign on the table that says only the perfect beyond this point. All the while forgetting the admonition of Isaiah chapter one where God says, come, reason with me. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make you white as snow. Though they are crimson, I will make you white as wool. But no, 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 not if there's a purity table. The purity table is one that keeps a lot of people out of the presence of God. And where there is a purity table, there's bound to be a, a penance table as well a table where there sits a scale and the good of your life is weighed against the bad of your life. And if the scale is dipping in the wrong direction, then you don't, you don't gain access to the Father. And until your good behavior can outweigh your bad behavior, then I'm sorry, you're gonna have to stay outside of his presence. Sadly, that table, the penance table, is one that sits in the lobby of a lot of churches these days. I don't mean to belittle or throw rocks at any particular denomination, but I was doing some research this week about penance and it just began to break my heart the way that churches abused this thing and forced people to think that until they can figure out how to do enough good, they don't get to make their way into God's presence. I was looking at, at the definition, and this is a kind of a, a, a collaboration of all the different religions that still practice this, but here's, here's what it read. Self-punishment, or punishment inflicted by a church authority as an outward expression of repentance for having done wrong. You come to the church, you confess your sin, and they say, okay, here's the punishment for what you've done, and only after we say you're forgiven are you actually forgiven. Show me that in the gospel. That doesn't exist. Last I checked, Isaiah 53 said the punishment for my sin was placed upon the sinless lamb of God and that he already paid the price so that I could be set free of all the wrong that I've done. So there is no scale. He already wiped the scale off the table. But, but so many places, even internally, we begin to practice this penance. And, and let me once again address all of my, my Catholic brothers and sisters or ex-Catholic brothers and sisters. And I say this with all respect, but... I know that in, the, uh, in Catholicism, there is a practice of penance where you are required, required to go to your priest and confess your sins. Father, forgive me for I have sinned. And we've bought into this idea as Catholics that, that forgiveness comes from the priest and not from God. That once the priest forgives you, then you are forgiven. Friends, that is nowhere in the Bible. That is a version of dead religion that does not exist in scripture. In fact, Jesus addresses even that idea of calling somebody father in the text that we're talking about this morning. He says in Matthew 23, don't let anybody call you father. You only have one father and it is your father that is in heaven. So you don't need to worry about calling somebody else that here on earth. That's why my business cards don't say father Tim. They don't. I ain't your daddy and I don't need to hear about your sin. <laughs> I actually don't even have business cards. And, and I prefer the term his high holiness. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> But that penance table keeps a lot of people out of God's presence. Maybe it's neither of those. Maybe it's another P word. Maybe it's a prescriptive table where we trade in the scales for 
a, a mounting list of textbooks and all the extra biblical rules. You can't wear this and you can't do that and you can't go there and you can't hang out with them. And then our Christianity becomes nothing more than endless membership classes and spiritual education. And only after you've gone through the classes and proven yourself to the leadership, do you have the ability to, to step into the next phase of this thing called Christianity. Again, dead religion. I, I remember when we first launched the church here back in 2018, uh, someone came up to me a few months after we started and uh, they began to, to ask some questions about our baptism protocol because we were baptizing people every single week. I think today was the first time in a long time we didn't have someone getting baptized, which is grieving me, but that's okay. They'll be back next week. Uh, but th they're like, hey, like I see a lot of people getting baptized, but we've only been at church for a couple of weeks. Um, at my old church, if you wanted to get baptized, you had to go through a 12-week class about baptism. And after those 12 weeks, you sat down and you interviewed with an elder or with a leader in the church, and they would determine whether or not you were eligible to get baptized. So what's the deal here? What she was saying was, you're letting way too many people pass the table. <laughs> and I was as gracious as I could be, but I said, hey, if you can show me a single scripture to back that up, I will reconsider our methodology here at the Father's house. But that doesn't exist in the Bible. Last time I checked, the Bible said, repent and be baptized. It did not say, repent, go to a 12-week class to learn about repentance, sit down with a leader to find out if you've actually repented, and then if we think that you've repented as, not, as you're supposed to, then we'll let you get, no! That's not how it works. Philip found a eunuch in a chariot on the side of the road, and he's like, yo, there's a pond over there. Let's go ahead and baptize you real quick. Paul, Silas, prison, jailer, holding him hostage, middle of the night, decides to give his life to Christ. He's like, let's baptize you. I don't care that it's 2 a.m. There is no waiting period. There isn't 15 classes you have to attend and 10 hoops you have to jump through to follow Jesus. There is no prescriptive method. It's just loving Jesus and following him in his ways. It's, that's what it's supposed to look like. But, but we've all bumped up against some of these tables before. Whether it's any of those or go down the list. Let's just use the letter P like Sesame Street. You could go pedigree. You could go pace. You could go politics. There's a lot of tables that people run into in the faith. But Jesus comes in Mark chapter 11 to address the tables. He says, these are not from me. There is no barrier. There is no wall. What did he say? I desire that all nations, all people will have access to the Father. Not those with the right amount of money, not those that were born into the right family, not those who've been able to perform all the religious rituals. I desire that all would come into my presence. And I did not come to earth so that you could remain at a distance from the Father. I came to give my life and once and for all address the separation between God and man. Because you don't know it yet, but in a couple of days, I'm gonna give my life on a cross. And when I do, I will declare that it is finished and there will be a veil and the temple that separates the presence of God currently, but after that moment, come on, all can enter in. Regardless of your background, your sin, your pedigree, your pace, regardless, you can enter into my presence. And so Jesus comes in Mark 11 to say, hey, if you find yourself running into some tables in this thing called faith, you can take a play from my book, you can muster up some messianic zeal, and you can take those things and you can flip them over once and for all because those have no place in the kingdom. 
felt good. <laughs> Refer back to last week's sermon, The Violence of the Kingdom. Okay. They have no place in the kingdom. This, this is what it looks like to lose religion, to flip every barrier, every lie, every fence, every denominational burden on its head because Jesus said, all can come into my presence. I'm out of time. Band, you guys can come. One more thought as we conclude. Maybe you'd say, hey, um, Tim, I, uh, I did that. I've done this in my life. I, I, I have, I've understood the purity of the gospel. I don't feel like I'm at a distance from God. I feel like I've got this free access to the Father. And I would say, hey, that, that is awesome. But, but let me ask you one more question before we conclude. Maybe you flipped over the tables in your own life, but have you set up tables in the lives of other people? Have you built walls and barriers, maybe unintentionally, between God and people that friends, family members, coworkers just keep running into as they're trying to make their way to God? Have you held other people to an unrealistic standard of holiness that you're not holding yourself to? Have you operated with the same level of grace to others as you do to yourself? Or are you just setting up tables for other people to run into as they try to make their way to God? We need to be careful that we're vigilant about removing tables for all. You know, Jesus was not mad at the Pharisees because they were simply keeping themselves out of God's presence. What did he say? You're shutting the door of the kingdom on other people. You're making it difficult for others to come into my presence. Be careful how you categorize sin. How we tend to think that ours is not as bad as somebody else's. And their sin or that sin is worse than others. That's a table. Be careful about the self-righteous rants on social media. Hey, be careful about, be careful about how you try to marry your politics with your faith and assume that everyone who loves Jesus would vote this way or believe this. Those are tables that a lot of people can't seem to make their way past these days. Because Jesus, kingdom Jesus, he's not setting up any of those tables in the, in the courtyard. Kingdom Jesus loves people into a place of repentance. He doesn't clobber them with the truth. He loves the adulterer. He loves the broken. He loves the sexually misaligned. He loves the murderer. He loves the divorced. He loves, the, he loves all of them in hopes that his love would draw them to a place where they could come to his presence. And Jesus, kingdom Jesus, he's not political. He does not align with any political narrative or any side. He can never and will never because his values are just outside of all of that. Yes, does he grieve the murder of the unborn? Absolutely. But he also grieves the unjust treatment of the refugee and the unjust treatment of those that are kept out. And he cares far less than you might think about how much money you owe to Caesar. And he cares far more about how you're leveraging your current resources for the purposes of his kingdom. He's not trying to win people over and to make sides and, 
and, and, and invite them into your group. It's James 1.27. Here is pure, true, genuine religion. Love people and serve them. It's that simple. So, so may we be careful that we are not setting up tables that Jesus is currently flipping in the lives of other people. Be careful about imposing those religious standards on others. I end with this today. Another great line from the apostle James. He says this, Acts 15, 19. If you've been to our Discover class, you've heard me teach on this. One of my favorite scriptures. He says, and so it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. Translation, in the kingdom, we ain't got no tables. It's not difficult to come to Jesus. That's this church. That's the kingdom. And that's the invitation today. If you find yourself at a distance, get all the tables out of the way and just come running to Jesus. Let's pray as, as we conclude. Holy Spirit, we thank you. Thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you displayed so vividly for us in scripture how easy it is to come into your presence. Right now, we just, as we sang earlier and as we'll sing in, in, in a moment, just again, we, we, we ask that you tear down every wall. We relinquish our dead religious ideologies and we embrace the purity, the simple purity of the gospel today, that all may come. And maybe you're here this morning and, and, and you say, hey, Tim, um, as you're talking about people who feel like they can't come into God's presence, I, I have been one of those. I've been at a distance from God for a long time. And, and today I, I just, I sense the invitation. I sense the invitation to, to step beyond those tables that I feel has been, have been keeping me from God. And I wanna come close to him. I know that things are not right between me and Jesus and I wanna fix that before I leave this place. If that's you this morning, I wanna pray a very simple prayer with you before we conclude today. And, and as I pray that prayer with you, I always like to see who I am praying with so that we can pray this together. But if that's you and you say, Tim, I need to get things right with God before I leave this place, would you quickly lift up your hand and look at me so I know who I'm praying with today? Thank you, I got you. Awesome, oh yeah, okay, got you up there, right on. All right, you can just pray this under your breath. Say, Jesus, today I give you my life. Thank you for giving yours for mine. Today I, I choose to follow you. I come running past every table and every barrier that has kept me at a distance and right into your arms. Help me to be your disciple, to follow you from this day forward until the moment where I see you in heaven. And you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that's been set before you. Today, I give you all of me and I receive all of you in return. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Amen, amen, amen. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.